Chapter Six of Dread: A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Dread, Chapter Six: The Dilemma. In order to understand the occasion which hurried Harry home, we must go back to Canama. Nina, after taking her letters from the hands of Tomtit, as we have related, ran back with them into Mrs. Nesbitt's room and sat herself down to read them. As she read, she evidently became quite excited and discomposed, crumpling a paper with her little hand and tapping her foot impatiently on the carpet. "'There, now, I'm sure I don't know what I shall do, Aunt Nesbitt,' addressing her aunt, because it was her outspoken habit to talk to anybody or thing which happened to be sitting next to her. "'I've gotten myself into a pretty scrape now.' "'I told you you'd get into trouble one of these days.' "'Oh, you told me so. If there's anything I hate, it is to have anybody tell me I told you so. But now, aunt, really, I know I've been foolish, but I don't know what to do.' Here are two gentlemen coming together that I wouldn't have meet each other here for the world, and I don't know really what I had better do. You'd better do just as you please, as you always do, and always would, ever since I knew you, said Aunt Nesbitt in a calm, indifferent tone. But really, Aunt, I don't know what's proper to do in such a case. Your and my notions of propriety, Nina, are so different that I don't know how to advise you. You see the consequences now of not attending to the advice of your friends? I always knew these flirtations of yours would bring you into trouble. And Aunt Nesbitt said this with that quiet, satisfied air with which precise elderly people so often edify their thoughtless young friends under difficulties. Well, I didn't want a sermon now, Aunt Nesbitt, but as you've seen a great deal more of the world than I have, I thought you might help me a little, just to tell me whether it wouldn't be proper for me to write and put one of these gentlemen off, or make some excuse for me or something. I'm sure I never kept house before. I don't want to do anything that don't seem hospitable, and yet I don't want them to come together. Now, there, that's flat." There was a long pause in which Nina sat vexed and colouring, biting her lips, and nestling uneasily in her seat. Mrs. Nesbitt looked calm and considerate, and Nina began to hope that she was taking the case a little to heart. At last the good old lady looked up and said very quietly, I wonder what time it is. Nina thought she was debating the expediency of sending some message, and therefore she crossed the room with great alacrity to look at the old clock in the entry. It's half past two, aunt, and she stood with her lips apart, looking at Mrs. Nesbitt for some suggestion. "'I was going to tell Rosa,' she said abstractedly, "'that the onion in the stuffing does not agree with me. "'It rose on my stomach all yesterday morning, but it's too late now.' Nina actually stamped with anger. "'Aunt Nesbitt, you are the most selfish person I ever saw in my life.' "'Nina, child, you astonish me,' said Aunt Nesbitt, with her wanted placidity. "'What's the matter?' "'I don't care,' said Nina. "'I don't care a bit.' 
I don't see how people can be so. If a dog should come to me and tell me he was in trouble, I think I should listen to him and show some kind of interest to help him. I don't care how foolish anybody has been. If they are in trouble, I'd help them if I could, and I think you might think enough of it to give me some little advice. Oh, you're talking about the affair yet? said her aunt. Why, I believe I told you I didn't know what to advise, didn't I? Shouldn't give way to this temper, Nina. It's very unladylike besides being sinful. But then I don't suppose it's any use for me to talk. And Aunt Nesbitt, with an abused air, got up, walked quietly to the looking-glass, took off her morning cap, unlocked her drawer, and laid it in, took out another, which Nina could not see different a particle from the last, held it up thoughtfully on her hand, and appeared absorbed in the contemplation of it while Nina, swelling with a mixture of anger and mortification, stood regarding her as she leisurely picked out each bow, and finally, with a decorous air of solemnity, arranged it upon her head, patting it tenderly down. "'Aunt Nesbitt,' she said suddenly, as if the words hurt her, "'I think I spoke improperly, and I'm very sorry for it. I beg your pardon.' "'Oh, it's no matter, child. I didn't care about it. I'm pretty well used to your temper. Bang went the door, and in a moment Nina stood in the entry, shaking her fist at it with impotent wrath. You stony, stiff, disagreeable old creature! How came you ever to be my mother's sister? And with the word mother she burst into a tempest of tears and rushed violently to her own chamber. The first object that she saw was Milly arranging some clothes in her drawer, and to her astonishment, Nina rushed up to her, and throwing her arms round her neck, sobbed and wept in such tumultuous excitement that the good creature was alarmed. "'Laws, bless my soul, my dear little lamb, what's the matter? Why, don't, don't, honey. Why, bless the dear little soul. Bless the dear precious lamb. Who's been a-hurtin' of it?' and at each word of endearment Nina's distress broke out afresh, and she sobbed so bitterly that the faithful creature really began to be frightened. "'Laws, Miss Nina, I hope there ain't nothing happened to you now.' "'No, no, nothing, Millie. Only I am lonesome, and I want my mother. I haven't got any mother. Dear me,' she said with a fresh burst. "'Ah, the poor thing!' said Millie compassionately, sitting down and fondling Nina in her arms, as if she had been a babe. Poor child, lost, yes, I remember your ma was a beautiful woman. Yes, said Nina, speaking between her sobs. The girls at school had mothers, and there was Mary Brooks. She used to read to me her mother's letters, and I used to feel so, all the while, to think nobody wrote such letters to me. And there's Aunt Nesbitt. I don't care what they say about her being religious. She is the most selfish, hateful creature I ever did see. I do believe if I was lying dead and laid out in the next room to her, she would be thinking what she'd get next for dinner. Oh, don't, my poor lamb, don't, said Millie compassionately. Yes, I will, too. She's always taking it for granted that I'm the greatest sinner on the face of the earth. She don't scold me. She don't care enough about me to scold. She only takes it for granted in her hateful, quiet way that I'm going to destruction and that she can't help it and don't care, supposing I'm no good. What's to make me good? Is it going to make me good for people to sit up so stiff and tell me they always knew I was a fool and a flirt and all that? Millie, 
I've had dreadful turns of wanting to be good, and I've laid awake nights and cried because I wasn't good. And what makes it worse is that I think if Mama was alive, she could help me. She wasn't like Aunt Nesbitt, was she, Millie? No, honey, she wasn't. I'll tell you about your Ma sometime, honey. The worst of it is, said Nina, when Aunt Nesbitt speaks to me in her hateful way, I get angry, and then I speak in a way that isn't proper, I know. Oh, if she only would get angry with me back again, or if she'd do anything in the world but stand still in her still way, telling me she is astonished at me. That's a lie, too, for she never was astonished at anything in her life. She hasn't life enough to be. Ah, Miss Nina, we mustn't expect more of folks than there is in them. Expect? I don't expect. Well, bless you, honey. When you knows what folks is, don't let's worry. You can't fill a quart cup out of a thimble, honey. No way you can fix it. There's just where it is. I knowed your ma and I knowed Miss Lou ever since she was a girl. Pears like they ain't no more alike than snow is like sugar. Miss Lou, when she was a girl, she was that pretty that everybody was wondering after her. But to the love that there went after your ma. Couldn't tell you why it was, honey. Peered like Miss Lou wasn't touchy, nor she wasn't one of your bursting out sort, scolding around. Peered like she'd never hurt nobody. And yet our people, they couldn't none of them bear her. Peered like nobody did nothing for her with a will. Well, good reason, said Nina. She never did anything for anybody else with a will. She never cared for anybody. Now, I'm selfish. I always knew it. I do a great many selfish things, but it's a different kind from hers. Do you know, Millie, she don't seem to know she is selfish. There she sits, rocking in her old chair, so sure she's going straight to heaven and don't care whether anybody else gets there or not. Oh, laws now, Miss Nina, you's too hard on her. Why, look how patient she sits with Tum Tit, teaching him his hymns and verses. And you think that's because she cares anything about him? Do you know she thinks he isn't fit to go to heaven, and that if he dies, he'll go to the bad place? And yet, if he was to die tomorrow, she'd talk to you about clear starching her caps. No wonder the child don't love her. She talks to him just as she does to me. Tells him she don't expect anything of him. She knows he'll never come to any good. And the little wretch has got it by heart now. Do you know that, though I get in a passion with Tom sometimes, and though I'm sure I should perish sitting boring with him over those old books, yet I really believe I care more for him than she does. And he knows it, too. He sees through her as plain as I do. You'll never make me believe that Aunt Nesbitt has got religion. I know there is such a thing as religion, but she hasn't got it. It isn't all being sober and crackling old stiff religious newspapers and boring with texts and hymns that make people religious. She is just as worldly-minded as I am, only it's another way. There, now, I wanted her to advise me about something today. Why, Millie, all girls want somebody to talk with. And if she'd only showed the least interest in what I said, she might scold me and lecture me as much as she'd a mind to. But to have her not even hear me? 
and when she must have seen that I was troubled and perplexed and wanted somebody to advise me, she turned round so cool and began to talk about the onions and the stuffing. Got me so angry. I suppose she is in her room now, rocking and thinking what a sinner I am. Well, now, Miss Nina, pears though you've talked enough about that are, pears like it won't make you feel no better. Yes, it does make me feel better. I had to speak to somebody, Millie, or else I should have burst. And now I wonder where Harry is. He always could find a way for me out of anything. He has gone over to see his wife, I think, Miss Nina. Oh, too bad. Do send Tom Tit after him right away. Tell him I want him to come right home this very minute. Something very particular. And, Millie, you just go and tell Old Hundred to get out the carriage and horses, and I'll go over and drop a note in the post office myself. I won't trust it to Tom Tit, for I know he'll lose it. Miss Nina, said Millie, looking hesitantly, I spec you don't know how things go about round here, but the fact is, old hundred has got so kind of curious lately, they can't nobody do nothing with him except Harry. Don't tend to do nothing, Miss Lou tells him to. I's feared he'll make up some story or other about the horses, but he won't get em out. Now mind, I tell you, child. He won't? I should like to know if he won't when I tell him to. A pretty story that would be. I'll soon teach him that he has a live mistress, somebody quite different from Aunt Lou. Well, well, child, perhaps you better go. He wouldn't mind me, I know. Maybe he'll do it for you. Oh, yes, I'll just run down to his house and hurry him up. And Nina, quite restored to her usual good humor, tripped gaily across to the cabin of Old Hundred that stood the other side of the house. Old Hundred's true name was, in fact, John, but he had derived the appellation by which he was always known from the extreme moderation of all his movements. Old Hundred had a double share of that profound sense of dignity of his office, which is an attribute of the tribe of coachmen in general. He seemed to consider the horses and carriage as a sort of family ark, of which he was the high priest, and which it was his business to save from desecration. According to his own showing, all the people on the plantation, and indeed the whole world in general, were in a state of habitual conspiracy against the family carriage and horses, and he was standing for them, single-handed, at the risk of his life. It was as much part of his duty, in virtue of his office, to show cause on every occasion why the carriage should not be used, as it is for state attorneys to undertake prosecutions. And it was also a part of the accomplishment of his situation to conduct his refusal in the most decorous manner, always showing that it was only the utter impossibility of the case which prevented the available grounds of refusal, Old Hundred had made a life study, and had always a store of them cut and dried for use, all ready at a moment's notice. In the first place, there were always a number of impossibilities with regard to the carriage. Either it was muddy, and he was laying out to wash it, or else he had washed it and couldn't have it splashed, or he had taken out the back curtain and had laid out to put a little stitch in it, one of these year days, or there was something the matter with the irons. He reckoned they was a little bit sprung. 
He allowed he'd asked the blacksmith about it some of these year times. And then as to the horses, the possibilities were rich and abundant. What with strains and loose shoes and stones getting in at the hoofs, dangers of all sorts of complaints, for which he had his own vocabulary of names, it was next to an impossibility, according to any ordinary rule of computing chances, that the two should be in complete order together. Utterly ignorant, however, of the magnitude of the undertaking which she was attempting, and buoyant with the consciousness of authority, Nina tripped singing along and found Old Hundred tranquilly reclining in his tent door, watching through his half-shut eyes, while the afternoon sunbeam irradiated the smoke which rose from the old pipe between his teeth. A large black one-eyed crow sat perching with a quizzical air upon his knee, and when he heard Nina's footsteps approaching, cocked his remaining eye towards her, with a smart observing attitude, as if he had been deputed to look out for applications while his master dozed. Between this crow, who had received the sobriquet of Uncle Jeff, and his master, there existed a most particular bond of friendship and amity. This was further strengthened by the fact that they were both equally disliked by all the inhabitants of the place. Like many people who are called to stand in responsible positions, Old Hundred had rather failed in the humble virtues and become dogmatical and dictatorial to that degree that nobody but his own wife could do anything with him. And as to Jeff, if the principle of thievery could be incarnate, he might have won a temple among the Lacedaemonians. In various skirmishes and battles consequent on his misdeed, Jeff had lost an eye, and had a considerable portion of the feathers scalded off on one side of his head, while the remaining ones, discomposed by the incident, ever after stood up in a protesting attitude, imparting something still more sinister to his goblin appearance. In another recounter he had received a permanent twist in the neck, which gave him always the appearance of looking over his shoulder, and added not a little to the oddity of the general effect. Uncle Jeff thieved with an assiduity and skill which were worthy of a better cause, and when not upon any serious enterprise of this kind, employed his time in pulling up corn, scratching up newly planted flower seeds, tangling yarn, pulling out knitting needles, pecking the eyes of sleeping people, scratching and biting children, and any other little miscellaneous mischief which occurred to him. He was invaluable to Old Hundred, because he was a standing apology for any and all discoveries made on his premises of things which ought not to have been there. No matter what was brought to light, whether spoons from the great house, or a pair of sleeve buttons, or a handkerchief, or a pipe from the neighboring cabin, Jeff was always called up to answer. Old Hundred regularly scolded on these occasions, and declared he was enough to spile the character of any man's house. And Jeff would look at him comically over the shoulder, and wink his remaining eye as much as to say that this scolding was a settled thing between them, and that he wasn't going to take it at all in ill part. "'Uncle John,' said Nina, "'I want you to get the carriage out for me right away. I want to take a ride over the cross run.' "'Laws, bless your sweet face, honey child. "'I's dreadful sorry, but you can't do it dis year day.' "'Can't do it? Why not?' "'Why, bless you, child, it ain't possible, no way. "'Can't have the carriage and horses dis year afternoon.' 
but i must go over the cross run to the post office i must go this minute law child you can't do it for you can't walk and it's certain you can't ride because these year horses nor dish year carriage can't stir out dish year afternoon no way you can fix it might go perhaps tomorrow or next week oh uncle john i don't believe a word of it i want them this afternoon and i say i must have them no you can't child said old hundred in a tender condescending tone as if you were speaking to a baby i'll tell you dat there's impossible why bless your soul miss nina de curtains is all off de carriage well put them on again ah miss nina dat air ain't all pete was desperate sick last night took with them thumps powerful bad why miss nina he was dat sick i had to be up with him most all night and while old hundred thus adroitly issued this little work of fiction the raven nodded waggishly at nina as much as to say you hear that fellow now nina stood perplexed biting her lips and old hundred seemed to go into a profound slumber i don't believe but what the horses can go to-day i mean to go and look law sonny child you can't now the doe's all locked and i got the key in my pocket every one of them critters would have been killed forty times over for now i think everybody in dis year world is atter dem dar critters miss lou she wanted em to go one way and harry's allers usin de critters got one out dis year atternoon ridin over to see his wife don't see no use in his ridin round so grand no way laws miss nina your pa used to say to me says he uncle john you knows more about dem critters than i do and now i tell you what it is uncle john you take care of dem critters don't you let nobody kill em for nothin now miss nina i's always a walkin in the steps of the colonel's directions now good clear bright weather over good roads i likes to trot the critters out that there's reasonable but den what roads is over to cross run i want to know dem dare roads is the most miserablest things you ever did see mud high off for to see the mud down there by the creek why the bridge all teared off man drowned in that dare creek once was so it ain't no sort of road for young ladies to go over tell you miss nina why don't you let harry carry your letter over if he must be a ridin round the country don't see why he couldn't do some good with his ridin why the carriage wouldn't get over before ten o'clock this year night now mine i tell you besides it's gwine for to rain i've been feeling that there in my corns all dis year morning and jeff he's been acting like the very devil hisself the way he always does for it rains never know dat there sign to fail the short of the matter is uncle john you are determined not to go said nina but i tell you you shall go there now now do you get up immediately and get out those horses old hundred still sat quiet smoking and nina after reiterating her orders till she got thoroughly angry began at last to ask herself the question how she was going to carry them into execution old hundred appeared to have descended into himself in a profound reverie and betrayed not the smallest sign of hearing anything she said i wish harry would come back quick she said to herself as she pensively retraced her steps through the garden but tom tit had taken the commission to go for him in his usual leisurely way spending the greater part of the afternoon on the road 
Now ain't you ashamed of yourself, you mean old nigger? said Aunt Rose, the wife of Old Hundred, who had been listening to the conversation, talking about de creek and de mud and de critters, and Lord knows what all when we knows it's nothing but your laziness. Well, said Old Hundred, what would come of the critters if I wasn't lazy, I want to know. Laziness? It's the very best thing for the critters can be. Where dem horses have been now if I'd have been one of your highfalutin sort always driving around? Where'd they have been and what would they have been, hey? Who wants to see horses all skin and bone? Lord, if I had been like some of the coachmen, the buzzards would have had the picking of them critters long ago. I really believe that you've told them dar lies till you begin to believe them yourself, said Rose. Telling our dear sweet young lady about your being up with Pete all night, when the Lord knows you laid here snoring fit to tire the roof off. Well, must say something. Folks must be respectful to the ladies. Of course, I couldn't tell her that I wouldn't take the critters out, so I just trots out excuse. Ha, lots of them excuses I keeps. I tell you now, excuses is excellent things. Why, excuses is like this year grease that keeps the wheels from screeching. Lord bless you, the whole world turns round on excuses. Where'd the world be if everybody was such fools to tell the real reason for everything they are gwine for to do or ain't gwine for to? End of chapter 6 The Dilemma